Warriors, Tunse Sego Anibuju, Kwe Nindeluizi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. The Warrior Life is a podcast show that focuses on the lifestyle of decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over our traditional territories. And one of the ways that we can stand in solidarity with all the different nations on these territories is to help amplify each other's voices about injustices that are happening, no matter where it is. For decades, education about First Nations, Métis and Inuit have always been done by non-Indigenous peoples, but times have changed and we are occupying and reoccupying all of our spaces and places. And we now have access to social media, videos, blogs, and podcasts to educate our people in our own voices. Today's guest is blending old school politics with the latest in social media tools to help keep her constituents informed, educate Canadians about Inuit, and hold governments to account. NDP MP Mimulak Kakak is an Inuk woman who is literally changing politics in Canada. A well-known human rights defender, she was elected to Parliament in 2019 and has taken the House by storm. Her moving speeches in the House lay bare the failures of successive governments in a way that has really touched people. I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Pam. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here because I realize that you also have a full-time job. And I'm wondering if before we get right into it, you would like to introduce yourself uh, and your home community in the way that you like to do it. Super excited to be here. My name is Momila Kakak. I'm an Inuk woman originally from Baker Lake, Nunavut, closest to the geographic center of Canada. If you took a ruler from the tip to the tip to the tip to the tip, north, south, east, west, uh, you would find Baker Lake is closest to the middle of that. I also represent the largest electoral riding in the world uh, with a lot of unique issues and issues issues and challenges. Uh, and as a lone voice for that, uh, there's uh, a lot of things that come along with it, uh, along with being in a federal institution, an institution that was meant to kill, quite frankly. Well, thank you. I mean, it, that's it's such an important thing to understand for all of Canadians, just the scope of the territory that you represent and all of those voices that you have to represent. And um, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about, you know, your journey, you know, your journey leading up to getting into politics and then what led you into federal politics? Definitely. So I'm probably most well-known and people really refer to a video uh, from 2017 during Daughters of the Vote Equal Voice. It's a program, it's an organization that promotes young women in politics. And it was the first annual event that uh, was, had taken place where they brought 338 young women from across the country that represented each electoral riding. So at the time I sat in Hunter Tutu's seat, Hunter Tutu was the member of parliament for Nunavut. And it really launched me, uh, that video, I think, uh, had really launched me into uh, having opportunities that allowed me to amplify the, simply the awareness around the Canadian history, around Inuit, around the realities that we face. And that had kind of launched me into this path of where can we find our self-determination, where can we fix this ourselves? Because clearly we have not been heard for a number of decades. Um, so that had launched me into a number of opportunities that had allowed me to grow and develop my skills. Quite frankly, in August of 2019, I was asked if I'd be interested in running and it was an opportunity uh, that was best for me to take at the time and I took it. Well, that's, I mean, that's pretty incredible. You know, such a vast territory, um, such a senior level position in federal politics. And like I said in the introduction, you've literally taken the house by storm. I mean, 
ever since you've come into office, you have been a staunch advocate for social justice, human rights, climate action, and issues in relation to Inuit in particular. And one of the things I really appreciate is that your advocacy doesn't shy away from criticizing governments, including the federal government, when you see injustice. How important do you think it is that for people to to speak out, especially in positions like yours, and hold governments to account. I think that in in some ways is my purpose of being in that position. And a lot of the times that's simply just stating the what is us to us obvious, what to non-Indigenous peoples or to white people, a lot of the time just isn't um, just isn't obvious. When I say I'm standing in an institution that was meant to kill me and let that soak in and realize that I'm not even supposed to be standing there. I think even just those kinds of statements are really impactful because a lot of, quite frankly, white people standing in that house don't have to think about the kinds of things that we do. So in talking about the reality and criticizing the federal government, I'm just doing exactly what my job is. And that's exactly why I entered politics. If I couldn't speak to my realities in a way that needed to be, and if I was going to be censored, there was no way I was going to be running. And that was why I ran with NDP. And I have, you don't see me preaching and shouting pharmacare and Medicare because that's not what my constituents are asking for. And that's the beauty of being with my party. Well, and, you know, the, that's one of the things about politics. A lot of Native people in general are resistant to get into politics because although um, many political parties, when they're in opposition or when they're speaking in the media, they'll critique the government. But there's this fear that, you know, once you join a political party, your views are no longer, you don't get to advocate on behalf of the issues that you care about, that you just have to toe the party line and the party line is so limited. But we have been seeing you literally, you know, calling out the government over and over and over again and being specific on your issues. And I, and you know, that that's really refreshing for especially young people to see. I think that transparency is key because that shows that honesty and that transparency that we have been denied for decades. We have seen over and over again from all different kinds of leadership in all different parts of the country, these promises that continue to be broken. You know, we heard from this liberal government that MMIWG response plan was going to be delayed. They gave themselves that deadline. We've heard the boil water advisory, there's going to be a delayed. It's not even close to March yet. And they're, they were telling us the other month. And then they want to turn around and talk about the UN declaration, which I'm sure they're going to change inside and out so that it can't actually do what it's meant to, which is grant us the right to self-determination and empower us and give us our rights. I believe that the Canadian government is worried that things like the UN declaration have the ability to demolish documents like the Indian Act, and that in reality is going to cost the government a lot of money. It's going to cost the government a lot to give adequate housing, affordable living and clean drinking water to all Indigenous peoples in Canada. So when we see announcements happen and then no follow through, it it creates this sense of distrust. And that transparency to me is is so key. And when we don't, we have we haven't seen that. And it's not just for Indigenous peoples, it's on all different levels and mostly in relation to money. And we've seen in COVID that the federal government and that federal institution for a long time has not valued individuals on the ground, but has valued their uh, corporate individual buddies that will keep getting them reelected. Well, and, you know, so it's so refreshing here again, you're really speaking truth to power because, you know, as First Nations people, we have been saying that as well. It's not simply good enough to have a whole bunch of corporate tables where you're sitting down with political organizations and taking selfies. And that's great. The true test of whether or not you are engaged in reconciliation with Indigenous peoples is as you say, well, let's go look at the conditions on the ground with Inuit and First Nations and Métis people and say, are they living in good conditions? That's the test. The test isn't whether you get along well with political organizations or industry or business or anything like that. And 
And so the way you are able to just be so direct and cut through all of the rhetoric, I think is something that's appealing, not just to people who follow politics, but to a much younger generation who is so tired of hearing the speaking points. I think the the test is quality of life, and we see quality of life is poor, and therefore the test has failed. We, the federal government has been failing Indigenous peoples for a long time. I was asked, uh, I had I love flipping interviews on on people and I love interacting with the media as as people all know or people that follow me well know. And I had asked somebody interviewing me, I said, who does it benefit that we do not know Canadian history? And that's the the beauty. I've been saying it like this. That is the beauty of how well colonization works is that you don't even know you're in it for a long time that uh, growing up, I had no interest in school and English and social studies. We were reading Shakespeare and learning about World War One and Two, and it wasn't until a few years after I had I had graduated from high school that it had clicked. I had never learned my history on my homelands, and that had launched me into going and doing a lot of my own research, a lot of my own trying to find answers and realizing just really how oppressed and how the evolution of the federal institutions relationship with indigenous peoples and majority indigenous communities has made it so so that we continue to see like majority indigenous communities oppressed i think of a relation between uh, the movie the 13th amendment that does a really good job at explaining that relationship between black people and their governments and their institutions and how that laws were put into place to to oppress majority black and minority communities and just how nicely it all worked out with the people in power. And that's what we see in Canada. That's what we have been seeing is this great evolution of colonization continue to be carried out in a way that's really hard to uh, sometimes grasp. It can be very complex. And if you don't live it, uh, it can be, and even if you do live it, sometimes you don't even know you're in it. So I, I had asked, who does it benefit to not share Canadian history? And the answer was no one. That's not true. It benefits 100% the federal government to keep that truth from Canadians, because now in turn, we get to look angry all the time. We get to look like we're shouting from the mountaintops for no reason. That's not the truth. That's just simple unawareness of, of Canadians. And once Canadians see that history and understand the situations that we're in, there's a much more willingness to be supportive. And I think that that's what we see, you know, when we look at, say, Nova Scotia and what happened on Mi'kmaq territory. I think that's mostly a, an awareness of, I had gotten messages from, from friends out there and I said, hey, you're talking to me about a history. I don't know a treaty. I have no knowledge of uh, a situation. I don't understand the relationship. You are asking your conveniently brown friend for an opinion on something that I you can't ask me on. So I think this, you know, we're we're looking at a lot of division simply because of a lot of unawareness. Well, and one of the things that you do so well and that that I have a really strong respect for is you you take every opportunity in your platform, no matter where you are, when you're speaking, to do this education part. You don't just speak to the current issue that they're talking about. You always throw in educational aspects and you don't sugarcoat it because I think that does a disservice to Canadians. And I've watched lots of your speeches in the house. And, you know, sometimes they're, they're really quite emotional because you detail the ongoing human rights abuses experienced by the Inuit in the North, not just what happened in history or what the historical context is, but that link between history and what's happening right now. And um, one of the things I noticed in your reply to the speech of the throne, that was in the fall of 2020, you stated the Inuit are dying and we're dying before the pandemic. And you were trying to make this point that these conditions 
existed before we started having the pandemic crisis. Like, do you think in your experience in talking with Canadians and, you know, people around the country that most truly understand the impact of historic and ongoing human rights abuses currently being experienced by the Inuit? Not at all. Not. I I think it's still presented in a way that it's this foreign concept. It's... uh, in general, because we don't teach this Canadian history, which is also directly linked to currently what is going on, it creates this disconnect and this idea that Indigenous peoples are a foreign, uh, distant idea. And this is something that had happened way back in the past and in no way, shape or form touches our future, which simply isn't true. I think that in order for us to be able to have conversations that are more full and on a connecting level we need to understand where we're coming from first and we a lot of time we we really don't and a lot of time even when we interact we're not clear on what we're asking or what we're saying I think that in even communication between this more western unholistic really list approach uh to interacting with others just doesn't work. We need to have a much more holistic, a much more understanding. We are part of the cycle, not above it. Uh, And I think that that's a commonality that a lot of Indigenous groups share and understand that we we are part of this. We are not above the environment. We need it in order for us to survive. And I think that those conversations are starting to happen, but I think more importantly, people are realizing that the world that they were brought up is a world that was created for them and a world that benefits only them. And I think in some ways, those conversations are thankfully starting to change. Well, in, in no uh, short part because of your contributions and, you know, in addition to the speeches you make in the house or the things that you say in the media, one of the things I've noticed about your social media is that you're, open about your experiences, like your own personal experiences as an MP. And, you know, you speak out when you see something that isn't right. You also share the impact about how it's impacting you. And recently, you let everyone know that you were taking a temporary, you know, some time away from your role. Uh, Can you share a little bit with us about what was going on when that was happening? Because I don't think people understand just the significance of of why you were taking that leave. Definitely. So currently in Nunavut, we hear lots of numbers, lots of stats. We have nine times the suicide rate. Women in the North experience three times the violence. Uh, Nunavut compared to Ontario, I think death by RCMP is 14.35 times the rate higher. Uh, There's just all these scary numbers that involve violence and death and murder and suicide. And we hear these, but what we don't talk about is that lack of quality of life. Where we see turmoil, where we see violence, where we see destruction is where we see people struggling, is where we see people, is often where we see people that lack affordable food and don't have access to shelter, a safe place to sleep every night, and don't have that clean drinking water available to them. How can we expect anybody to contribute to society and provide them an opportunity to do that if they can't function as a human being, if they don't have that quality of life? We know these numbers. We know all these things. What we don't have is that human connection to it. So I had planned a three-week housing tour and planned on visiting each community in the first year. That was really important to me because in the again, going back to that lack of transparency and that lack of trust and even just that lack of willingness to give time, willingness to show up, willingness to be there is something that a lot of communities in Nunavut face. Nunavut uh, already is really, really left out of a lot of conversations and on the back burner, but a lot of communities are even more so. That's that's very much how they feel. Um, so to me, that transparency and and that community connectivity is something that is so so important um when i think of 
you know, how how are we going to change these conversations and how are we going to provide that I need to actually go there and I need to talk to people. So in those three weeks, I have visited eight communities. I had been over to 100 homes. Every single home I went to had mold. I had seen individuals in positions of influence that had been struggling with their housing situation for years, some situ- sometimes decades. I definitely saw what I predicted, which was the Khitimut region being much, uh, much more so left out and neglected. And that's exactly what I saw. I saw individuals who, I went there in August, and I remember one lady in particular, her bathroom uh, curtain was waving in the wind because her draft was so bad. And she said, we bathe once um, once a week in the winter and housing comes to defrost my bathroom and then we all bathe real quick and they bathe once a week and she had been stuck there for 15 years and these were individuals that look like me that share that history that share language share tradition share culture share normalities that I do and I heard stories of, I sat down with parents who told me about finding their 11-year-old hanging from the ceiling and their older sibling trashing that home in that point in time. Well, of course, if you find your younger sibling at 11 years old, but never being able to see those damages repaired and never even being able to see a lot of that equipment available for purchase in communities uh, is something that a lot of people don't think of. I met... uh, uh, individuals who lost their children to the foster care system due to moldy homes. Their home was deemed unfit, but they didn't have any other option. So in this history, and you can look at this housing history with the federal government, we see that people call them matchbox houses, and every community has matchbox house rows, which are is kind of what I refer them as. Uh, they're the first rows of homes in communities, and they are by far often the worst homes uh, when you go into a community. And you can spot them right away once you know what to look for. But also in these visits and this travel, I had realized that you know, a lot of health issues were connected to housing, but also a lot of families were being torn. A lot of tension was being created in communities simply because of the lack of underfunding from the federal government. There were com- uh, families in communities, and our families are, our communities rather, are very family based. We are very connected, very uh, depending on what communities. small we have big groups of families and there are there are families turning on each other now and the amount of frustration and stress and aggression quite frankly that is now being stirred up in communities on all different levels simply because of a lack of underfunding from the federal government but the thing is the federal government doesn't have to deal with any of this doesn't deal with those murders doesn't deal with those suicides you know those are the people on the ground that's the government of Nunavut that is forced now to deal with all this turmoil because of a lack of underfunding that we have always seen from the federal government so in in that housing tour, I knew because we all coming from Nunavut, we all have been more to to more funerals, to more funeral due to death by suicides than to weddings. And that's just how our lives go. And that's become our normal. And that's not normal. That shouldn't be normal for anyone. So in that travel, I had realized that not only had the federal government pushed individuals in communities to situations where they were choosing to take their own lives or continuing cycles of intergenerational trauma and abuse. Uh, You know, how can we talk about mental health services? How can we talk about get people getting better and breaking these cycles when they're still struggling with food, shelter and water? Now, the outcome of that is this turmoil, is this frustration, is this aggression, which in turn creates this crazy amount of lateral violence and this amount of uh, division in between communities, between Inuit, between Indigenous peoples, between leadership that needs to be working together and should be working together. Federal government has forced, continuously forces us into these impossible situations with these impossible choices. 
and to see, to know it and to know those numbers is one thing, but to see it and interact with all these human beings that have similar history to you and to realize that that the beauty of colonization is that people don't even know who to be mad at anymore. People, uh, I was stopping a lot of almost heated conversations of, hey, we need to be mad at the right people, not the federal government, because those are the individuals who have this financial ability and this financial power. And who should be fulfilling this injustice, fulfilling their obligations to the Nunavut Agreement? So it was, it was a lot to take in. I was gearing up to, I was a few days away from announcing my second round of touring um, to another four communities. Um, also, as a member of parliament, people don't realize everything comes out of pocket except your flights. Um, ex- and then you get submit for reimbursement. So all my hotels for those three weeks, uh, Coral Harbor, a hotel, a night is $350. So I learned the really, really hard way and probably... Uh, uh, I messed myself up financially. Personally, for a couple of months, I learned the really hard way. I can't do it like that. Um, so I was gearing up to go for another four communities. And uh, I I was basically on the hotel room floor trying to get myself on a flight. And I had contacted uh, my doctor when I had landed in Turkhalui. Luckily, I, I could make it. And uh, the conversation was persistent and you need two at least two months off and probably more because you're you're getting past burnout and it was definitely taking a physical toll so um I really I bit off way more than I could chew and it really really caught up to me and even from campaign people don't realize I I'm crazy I work a lot 12, 13, 14 hours a day, evenings, weekends. Uh, This Christmas, I didn't work. Last Christmas, I worked. Um, And people just don't realize those kinds of things. So um, I really had to pump the brakes and say, I I need to take care of myself if I'm going to do this job right. So it was a really, really uh, difficult, but I needed to go through that, I guess. Well, and, and, you know, that's also sending an important message to you know the rest of us in this advocacy world or activist world that you know we actually need to be okay physically mentally spiritually psychologically in order to do this work we we won't be effective if we have a burnout or we suffer physical harm or spiritual harm in the things that we do. And that's another thing. I think, you know, because of your honesty in sharing that on social media and, you know, because the the whole world, literally the whole world knew how impacted um, you were by visiting those homes and hearing those stories, even though you know it, even though you know the stats, the stats and human beings are completely different things. To know that this this has an impact on every single one of us in our families, no matter what job we have. And there's this huge misunderstanding that, you know, some Canadians think, oh, well, she's an MP, so she's okay. And it's like, well, how can she be okay if her cousins and her extended family and her friends and her community and all of those people are still struggling in those conditions, of course, that's going to impact us. And so it was really important when you did that. And you don't see a lot of politicians doing that, exposing any vulnerability or exposing the impact that those things have. And so, you know, I I really appreciate that. And, And I'm sure you know, there was a huge groundswell of support for you on social media, you know, people wishing you the best, wanting to support you. And it also helped draw attention to the issues that are actually impacting you. The fact, the lack of housing, proper housing for the Inuit and all of the other human rights abuses. And recently we heard, like in the last week, um, we heard about Inuit hunters who traveled for two days um, because they felt that their voices weren't being heard. They traveled to protest about Baffinland's um, 
Mary River iron ore mine and the impact it's having on the environment, on the animals, on the fish, um, on them health-wise. But, but, you know, like just the impact overall. And they were saying, um, I mean, they actually had to call in by a satellite phone, which is just shows Canadians, you know, it's not easy for Inuit voices to get out there, even on Inuit um, issues. Um, you know, they were saying that to double the capacity of the mine, people haven't actually taken into consideration what will the impact of railways and extra ships and, you know, all of this iron ore dust be on the environment. And, you know, it just brought to mind just how little mainstream media covers about issues that are important to the Inuit. And I can't help but think that had those hunters not traveled for two days to go and participate in that protest, how none of us might even be talking about this. And and all of the people that are now at the table talking might not have been. And I'm wondering what your experience is. Like, what do you think about what's happened in the last week? Totally. So I like uh, the family relation aspect. I keep trying to explain to even my colleagues like I can't turn off work because this isn't work this is our like I don't see it like that and I I think that there needs to be boundaries in life and that people need to find balance and that you should between your personal and work but me being in this position it's not something you turn on and off and it's not something you know people your friends and your connections still come to you and tell you things they still gonna you're still gonna know as an indigenous person what other people are saying about you that's just how it works we always know we're always connected and that's it's, I find that really difficult to s- explain that kind of what's normal to us and what's normal to you is something that's different, the connectivity. And, and I see that, like, for example, in Sikh culture, that's I find me and Jagmeet get along really well because they share values and beliefs that are very, very similar, very holistic, very uh, look at everything as we're a part of it, we're not above it, uh, and that we should uh, give uh, more than we take and all this. There's just so much similarity in the ideations of culture uh, that I find it just, it was so easy right away to understand uh, each other on a different level in that. And when I say, you know, when Jugme came up to the territory, we did a bunch of cool things, but ultimately you know we went to the soup kitchen and the boarding home and those kinds of places and i said this is who i'm talking about i'm not talking about having these big meetings and you know big speeches i'm talking about the people that really need help the people that don't and can't make it to fight for themselves because they're still fighting to make it day to day week to week and month to month check to check and those kinds of things were just something i didn't have to try and explain to him because he just got it but it's I find that's one of the most difficult things in my position is to say people legitimately want them to hand them like a 10-step guide or a 10-item checklist to reconciliation with Inuit I'm like that's not how it works but that's kind of the ideation of the society that we live in if you do x y and z you have fulfilled you have uh, you have done your duty uh you have fulfilled your due diligence or however you want to phrase it um but that's that's just not how it works and it's really hard to explain and try and work with it sometimes boils down to a lifestyle that you're raised in a, a different way of communication that you're raised in um the eyebrow raising and nose crunching the yes and the no is something that i automatically turn off when i'm down south and again going back to jugmeet he always says you good and i have to raise my eyebrows i can't verbally say yes because he knows that's what that comfort is and he reminds me all the time you can be comfortable here too we can make this space yours um so that's something that's super empowering but on that flip side, that normality that the the federal institution holds this very mm, policy procedure, not human, not connected, 
policy checkmark box approach of interacting with people. And I don't think that's that clearly hasn't been working and clearly works for them, but not for the people that need help. Um, so in, in saying that, and we've talked a lot about history, we've talked a lot about connection, we've talked about a lot a lot about how we talk to one another. And that's the the craziness of the 2021 world that we're living in is that a group of community members, a group of Inuit felt that they had to travel an immense amount of time by skidoo in minus 40, 50 weather, like to have their voice heard. As a member of parliament, what that screams to me is what's going on the ground going on on the ground clearly isn't working. The procedures and policies that the Baffinland and other mining companies have to follow are outlined by the federal institution. So that's where I took that on and started engaging and trying to have conversations, figuring out, okay, what is going on here? Because this is something, again, for years has been being able to steamroll over Inuit concerns, Inuit voices. Uh, the amount that it seems that this mining company has invested in is way more than what they have even been approved. So what they're already doing is work before we've even said we're okay with it. Now, who's steamrolling this in the Liberal government then? So I'm having calls with Minister of Northern Affairs. I'm having calls with people on the ground and trying to figure out, hey, what's going on? Because clearly people are upset. And this conversation has been going on since I was in high school. These issues and this stuff around mining has been an, a huge concern since before I was born. What we're seeing now, because we're able to connect like this, because we're able to engage and educate and create more awareness, we're able to see that support and people be able to uh, come, come and support us and come and show us that strength with us. The interesting part about Nunavut is that unlike down south, it's not accessible, so it's a lot harder for, unless you are actually custodians of the land. Like if, if these guys had lost all their hunting skills in colonization, thankfully they didn't, but then they wouldn't be able to navigate and go and find their way to the airstrip to go and protest. And that's like the immense amount of power and strength and resilience and and let's be flipping clear that they fully understood what they needed to do in order to get this to stop and to get people to listen because the process and procedures weren't working and they felt that they needed to take drastic measures into their own hands and there is always reasoning behind it we are very patient people, very understanding, try and give everybody the benefit of the doubt and have been for decades, especially with the federal government. And that has always bitten us in the behind to be that, that loyal, to be that trusting when we shouldn't have been. It is not a, it's a really, really extreme thing for anyone to take those kinds of extreme matters into their own hands. And could you imagine if a blizzard popped up or, you know, with climate change, the amount that the ice conditions, and I don't, I'm, I'm not a hunter. I don't know things specific like that, but climate change is definitely impacting our hunters. Could you imagine if something happened along the way and all they're trying to do is get their voices heard for an expansion for, mind you, a mining company that can still function during COVID on the homelands in Nunavut without Nunavut employees. They are still running that mine with all its southern employees. Nunavut mining workers haven't been to work since March. So don't tell me you have some kind of magic plan that's going to get majority Inuit in that mining company, making those dollars, all that money, the majority of that money from that mine, not only the resources leaving, but the majority of that money leaves the territory all the time. And that's, here's the other thing. You're going to come, you're going to rip up our earth. You're going to be untrustworthy about it. You're going to be non-transparent about it. You're going to try and bulldoze over 
people who have traveled a long time in the cold simply to be heard. And it just, it's infuriating. And of course, what the conversation up to this point is, well, there's a process and procedure in place. Well, if your process and procedure is flawed, then sorry, Minister of Northern Affairs, but so is your decision. And let's make sure that doesn't happen, which we have seen over and over and over. I can't help but, and this is probably bad, but I can't help but kind of laugh at Trudeau with Joe Biden's like, we're not doing the pipeline anymore. <laughs> like we've been telling you from the get-go, we have other means and other ways to create economic development. Let's not tear up these natural resources, which in a few decades won't even be worth anything, by the way. You know, we're seeing these oil markets come down. We're seeing that we need to steer in the direction of being more green, being more natural. Why can't we talk more about being again? We are part of the environment, not above it. So it's so infuriating and so frustrating to constantly see from, especially like other non-white individuals that continue to decide to not talk about things the way that we need to. Like, are you serious? Like, uh, you want to tell me, (laughs) you want to tell me that this process is not flawed. You want to tell me that even though a lot of people are part of this process don't feel that they have gotten the chance to hear their voice so much to the point that they are traveling in minus 50 weather to occupy an airstrip, then clearly there are flaws in the process thus far. As minister, power and ability to influence that process, they fund it. So put in your extra, put your money where your mouth is, continue consultations in a way that makes sense in the time that people need it. Because according to the Nunavut agreement that you need to fulfill, Inuit have the right to voice their concerns orally as recognize that we are an oral history people and not a document, not a written. And they're they're breaking all different kinds of things on, on all different platforms. And it's... It's so frustrating and it's time for those conversations to, no, no, that's not how it's working. Don't tell me the policy and procedure is being followed because first off, it it's not even working. It's not the capacity it needs to be. And if it's being followed most often, especially with these liberals is, and conservatives, but that's a whole other discussion, um, is, is that it's often not or the process isn't being started for months on end. Well, and hear your voice is helping to expose the inherent contradictions of the situation for Inuit in the North. You mean to tell me that a mining company or any extractive industry company in the North can provide safe, warm housing, clean water and sanitation, healthy food, flights in and out, good pay. But the Inuit on that territory, oh, it's just impossible. It's too logistically difficult. It's, you know, we can't fix these problems overnight. Well, you can for man camps, but you can't seem to for the Inuit. And you don't shy away from that. Like one of the things I've noticed about politicians, um, you know, with with few exceptions, is that when there's a crisis, when things are in the media, they don't say anything. Or if they do say something, they're like, oh, well, you know, the parties are talking. You're calling it as it is, you know, because these are people on the ground who risk their own lives to go and protest. And how often do we see Inuit protest? Like almost never. So you know how serious it had to be. And then the other thing that you're helping to do is really expose the whole situation of federal governments consistently breaking their promises and not just to First Nations and Inuit people, but look at Nunavut that's heralded as this, you know, wonderful agreement. But what's what's the one common factor that they have with even historic treaties in the sense that it is you have to fight tooth and nail to get the federal government to live up to their legal commitments, their funding commitments, issues around devolution. And here you are as an MP, and you've got to represent that vast territory 
and and also the people on the ground and their issues and i you know just looking at your social media and i've i um you know i think people should follow you on social media here you are posting everything that's happening with these hunters and even the workers at the mine are saying hey we understand that this is your territory and that doubling capacity of the mine wouldn't be a good thing and so where is the federal government on their legal obligations? A policy and procedure means nothing, like you say, if you're actually not respecting rights and human rights and and you know the government of the Inuit. And it's just it, it just amazes me that you continue to do this and you are literally forging a new way for politicians to represent the people. That they work for. You're you're not representing people sitting in Ottawa or organizations. You're representing the people on the ground that are impacted. And that is really a significant change. I've had a quite a few heated um or almost heated, uh, maybe stern is a better way to put it. I don't I don't know what kind of way to describe the way I interact with people. I can be very intimidating sometimes. Um, but I've had quite a few stern conversations of uh, this isn't right. And it's okay to have differences of opinion and it's okay to speak out against what isn't working because that's exactly what we see across the country is it's not my problem. It's theirs. It's not my obligation. It's theirs. This isn't my jurisdiction or my responsibility. He said, she said, especially the federal government. I love, I love, love, you know, I, we sit there on um, on a virtual House of Commons all the time, right? So we have, you can see uh, everybody sitting there. And uh, you can have your camera on and off. And uh, a lot of the time I'm sitting there saying what the line is going to be. We really appreciate the extremely hard work that this organization is putting in. But we understand all the time because you can put out their their comeback word for word you can put out their statement line for line I don't know or understand how to interact in life like that I don't I I can't I and that was the first conversation I had when I was asked if I'd be interested in running for a member of parliament I said I don't want politics to ruin the foundation of who I am and I cried because that to me is so important that I would never lose my purpose in life is to help Inuit to the best of my ability. And being able to run for that position was the best opportunity at the time. And I took it. But I really understood that I don't want politics and these games to pull me into a world of uh, an almost non-reality that a couple thousand of us live in Ottawa on the Hill and uh, versus the actual reality of what those decisions look like on the other side, how they uh, impact communities, how they impact individuals. And that's always been something that has been top of mind for me. Never lose contact with community, never lose contact with youth. And doing that, I knew I had to be open and transparent. And I knew that in any point of time through this job, I, I can pick a handful of times, there was one time I was in an elevator with a colleague who was wearing a moose hide pin and um, uh, an, a liberal MP, I can't remember who specifically, came in and made a joke. How, how many pins can you make with a moose? And I can think of one or two other times where I didn't say anything. And I really regret it. I really regret it not saying, pardon, what's the joke? I don't get it. Can you explain it to me? Because that kind of ignorance and that kind of BS is not something I put up with on any level. And I just, I can't live any other way. I don't understand how to live any other way. And I can pick out the uncomfortable times where I wish I did something differently in being in this position and in my life a lot. Because I just, I... That transparency, that accountability, that this responsibility I have is so important. And it's not, it's not a position. This is not a, a salary. This is people's lives. This is the voices of people that don't feel that they have one. 
And that's why I take this job so seriously. And the, to me, this is not about being a member of parliament. To me, this is about, and and like you said, at if I don't do anything, at least I set the bar so flipping high that people are going to have high expectations of their leader. If I don't do anything, at least I can show people you can hold other people accountable. So I, I at least hope I can start those conversations of we can see change and we can have people that look like us in these kinds of positions and speak truth in them and hold that power in them and create safety because realistically a lot of these places aren't safe for us. Um, a lot of the time I feel really unsafe, um, you know, in this position and I need to create safety and what does that look like? And we have to put in even more work because of that. Uh, so there's just all these different levels and it's not impossible. And that's I'm, what I'm here to show everyone. Well, that those are such important and powerful messages for the youth, uh, because we have a lot of youth that are watching what we're doing in ways they didn't necessarily before. Youth weren't always interested in politics or what was happening around the country. Um, but we have a lot of youth who listen to this you know, Warrior Life podcast and podcasts in general. I mean, podcasts, as you know, are skyrocketing worldwide. They're easily accessible for most people. They're a source of information, analysis, and an insight from a diversity of voices that were excluded from mainstream media for decades. And you also have a podcast. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the things you, again, you're blazing trails because you don't see that from other people all the time. You don't, you know, especially in terms of MPs. And so I'm wondering if you can, you know, talk about why did you start the podcast, the kinds of guests you have, because I know one of my favorites, Cindy Blackstock was on there. That was such an awesome podcast episode. And, you know, the, what you're trying to achieve with your podcast. Definitely. So my podcast Moments with Mumilak was just an initiative to help create that realization that not all Indigenous people share the same views and beliefs, the same values, although there are definitely commonalities that we need to steer away from this idea of um. Uh, umbrella statements of all Indigenous people or all are, you know, people don't even realize there's a distinction between First Nations, Inuit and Métis. And even in, say, First Nations people, I like all the time I get uh, people come up to me and talk to me about some First Nations group. I'm like, I have no clue on earth, like what on what you're talking about. I don't understand those traditions or have any knowledge on that. They look at me like I have four heads. I look back at them like they have four heads because I don't know what you're saying or, or talking about. So the, the purpose was to uh, initially was to uh, create this realization that we come from all different and, and also all different professions, that all different, uh, that a profession can look different. It's not just Indigenous politicians or artists or musicians, but there's also seamstresses, there's activists, there's doctors, there's so many different kinds of fields. And I wanted to share that diversity in our own peoples as Indigenous peoples, but also in that walks of life and that profession. And I think we we have too much still, um, like, how does somebody from the res fit into the city and vice versa? I think there's still a lot of, I don't know if stigma is the right word, but almost like a division because it's not our choice where we grow up in. And like my life would have been totally different if I grew up where my mom was raised, which was Toronto area um, compared to if I was raised in Nunavut, like that's not my choice, but, the outcomes of what I make of that in life. Um, so I think that there's this conversation we really need to start having as Indigenous peoples amongst ourselves um, in in creating more connectivity and realizing that we can 
create modern and traditional and we can and we need to merge the two together in order to move forward um so the moments with mumilak is to create that awareness that we think differently we have different views and that's perfectly fine um i've had individuals like uh, dana kamalakjuk is the first inocardiac surgeon ever um i've had individuals like uh, twin flames uh, Elizabeth Isaac, uh, Cody Coyote, uh, Asiva Nakashuk, uh, quite a few mus- musicians. Uh, Mata Kayak is a seamstress, a well-known fashion designer. She's been on as well. And our next one, we're going to have you on, Pam. And we're going to start season two up here again soon. And um, we'll be having more guests on. So all the recommendations welcomed. And we'll, we'll see um, who else we can have on and just share more experiences and knowledge. And I love all. I had so much fun with Sid. Sydney I was like do you want to go half hour an hour like I'm easy going just give me a time I think we ended up going for about two and a half yeah. <laughs> it was such a good conversation it was so much fun it was so good so look Honestly. forward to having you on <laughs> oh I can't wait I'm so excited and I like this part of amplifying different voices you know there's First Nation voices and within First Nations there's a multitude of different voices and same with um uh, you as an Inuk and Métis voices, I think it's important. So um, you can catch that podcast online. You can catch it on any of the podcast apps. Uh, the logo's up there, the address. Um, but before we end this podcast, I ask the same question of all my guests. Um, guests, what can we do as Indigenous advocates or non-Indigenous allies to support your work and in particular, the Inuit on, on on the ground up in Nunavut. I think a lot of the connectivity aspects is something that really helps in the territory. A lot of communication is through Facebook, is through social media. And it is that having that connectivity piece. It's having to use a satellite phone because you're on an airstrip in the middle of nowhere. And that's how... First off, you need to get there to protest and then you need to contact. So I think that there that connectivity at every chance that you see it to share it, not just like it, but to share it. And I think it's that awareness and it's having these conversations just within if if they interest you within your own circles and sparking those ideas and that knowledge and that awareness. And I think it simply starts with that. When I went to school, I had lived uh, with an older couple who we taught each other a lot. And in turn, they had realized that the history, the Canadian history and the situations for Indigenous peoples, they understood it more so now. And to be quite frank, we're less, much less stereotypical of Indigenous peoples and had learned a lot. And that's what we need to start doing. We need to start having these conversations that say this is the reality, but this is why. And that's the important part. That's It's the why part. And sometimes that's difficult to piece together or to understand. Um, and there's always a level of your own educating you can do on your own before you start expecting other people to educate you. I think that's something that's really important. A lot of the laws and things that I talk about, they're in documentation. Look up the Nunavut Agreement. You want to, you want to understand more Nunavut history, look up the Qihitani Truth Commission. That has real experiences, real stories from the historical colonization, from dog slaughters, from forced relocation, from TB treatment, uh, all of these different kinds of stories. This information is out there. The documentation is out there. And I just encourage people to go find and do their own research before they start expecting other people to be their own. I have, My thing is, I'm not a Google taskbar. Go look up your own stuff. You can, you can Google a flight. Don't ask me. What are you asking me for? Google. So I, I think that that's something that's really important. Do some of your own research before you're going to come and ask me. And not just me, but just asking people you know with uh, more knowledge on certain subjects than you. Go find your own information before expecting other people's to share with you. Uh, I think that that's something that's really big. But also the people that are willing to share, soak it all up and take it all in and 
give uh, take every, all of those opportunities. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, thank you for being on this podcast, for being willing to have an extended conversation. Um, and I know you already have a full-time job. And in fact, it's not even a job. You live it and breathe it and work it. And it's just your life. And and we all appreciate that you've also taken time to make sure that you're okay because, wow, we so need you and we need more people like you and we need youth to see that it's empowering to take care of yourself so that we can continue our work taking care of others. So thank you so much for being so honest and, and sharing all of this and coming on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Can't wait to have you on mine. And we'll <laughs> me too. Soon. Um, and thank you to our listeners, viewers for putting your education into action to take up her call and actually assume the obligation of self-educating, learn everything you can before you come and, and have this conversation and then find ways within your skill set to take action, to do what you can to call attention and lift voices. And as always, I'll post links to her podcast and um, her Twitter handle, which we've been having up here so that you can access and, and follow her, what she's doing on social media. And you can follow all my stuff on my website, as always. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Well, Aliag. Well,